Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu. This is Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. In this episode, we'll discuss the 2022 North America Conference on Lung Cancer, NACLC 22 was a hybrid meeting. It was held in person in Chicago, but also streamed live online. To review the highlights of this meeting, I'm joined by two of the meeting chairs, Dr. Jessica Donington and Dr. Jyoti Patel, as well as Dr. Shruti Patel, one of the invited speakers. Dr. Jessica Donington is a professor of surgery, chief of the section of thoracic surgery at the University of Chicago. She's a past president of women in thoracic surgery in the New York Society for Thoracic Surgery. Jessica, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for the invite. I'm excited to talk about this meeting. It was uh, super fun to run, and I think it was successful, so I'm excited to spread the word even further. It was very successful, very fun to attend uh, as well. Uh, Another chair, Dr. Jyoti Patel, professor of medicine and the medical director of Thoracic Oncology at Northwestern University, where she's also the associate vice chair for clinical research. Jyoti, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for this invitation. It's great to talk about the meeting and some of the new breakthroughs. And we're also joined by Dr. Shruti Patel, a second-year fellow at Stanford University, who was one of the invited speakers at this meeting and did a wonderful job. Shruti, thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Now, first, congratulations on a wonderful meeting. Uh, Jessica, for those less familiar with this meeting, can you talk a little bit about the NACLC? Sure. The NACLC started as, I think, what we used to call the Chicago meeting, And Everett Bokes, our past president from ASCO and our chair of medicine here at the University of Chicago, was kind of the original founder. I think it even was started as like lung and head and neck, but it has been refined over the years. And we have had numerous different partners between ASCO, ASTRO, the STS, but our real stalwart partner for this meeting has been the IALSLC. They really took over running the meeting about, I don't know, five to 10 years ago and have done just a great job. Um, it, we have the North American meeting on those years when the World Conference on Lung Cancer is not in North America. So that's really, you know, two out of every three years. And it provides us an opportunity to, you know, go over some of the science that happened at World Lung. And then for all of us in North America to kind of get together. I feel really fortunate it's in Chicago. It's always easy to get to and a good place to have a meeting, especially in the fall. So it's been a great meeting and I've been thrilled to be part of it for the last five or six years now. You know, there was great attendance this year after it was remote for the past couple of years. Our last in-person NACLC was in 2019, but it was both in-person in Chicago and virtual. Jyoti, what are some of the organizational challenges with this approach? Is it kind of like planning two meetings? I think we've learned a lot in the past couple of years about how we learn what sort of tolerance is. And so in sort of scheduling, we thought about having chunks of time with reasonable break periods for those who weren't uh, there in person. So really in the virtual session, making them really high yield. And then in the, um, in the um, in-person group, which was the vast majority of people, we wanted to make sure that there was time for uh, networking and meeting each other, as well as having all of these different tracks. Remember, this is truly a multidisciplinary meeting. And so there were sessions that were sort of a meeting within a meeting. 
and planning that out. Um, you know, we tried to be thoughtful about it. Moreover, we want these sessions to kind of live on, right? And so uh, thinking about how we can develop sessions that are digestible in an hour or so with multiple viewpoints was important to us. I thought it was really thoughtfully laid out. And these are great educational talks from really knowledgeable colleagues. I think it's great to have as a resource. Um, so wonderful job. But as you mentioned, most of the attendance was in person and Chicago is such a great place to to connect. Jessica, there was great in-person attendance at this meeting. Did you get the sense that the lung cancer community, both investigators and patient advocates, really been waiting to reconnect in person? I definitely think people were excited to be live and to be able to talk to their friends and colleagues in science. I don't know, I'm a, maybe I'm bad. I believe that science is always better when you can talk about it with your colleagues across the aisle. And that's really hard to do at home. Yeah. Um, so I thought, I think people were, were really ready to be together, ready not only for the science to be live, but for the networking opportunities, which are totally lost on Zoom. Uh, and I think overall people were super enthusiastic. Yeah, I, I got that sense as well. Shruti, from a trainee standpoint, was that your sense? Absolutely. I think uh, the dialogue that comes from these meetings is something that can be difficult to obtain virtually, like you both said. And as a trainee, just being able to meet the people that are doing the work that we are, you know, I hopefully will do um, as an attending one day is incredibly inspiring and really the, the best advice that I received this weekend was during conversations um, while grabbing coffee in the hallway between talks. And uh, beyond that, even the, the poster session, it seemed like it was, you know, there were always people there. It was always bustling. And I think that's because being able to stand in front of a, a poster and discuss the project with its, you know, their investigator, as opposed to reading it online is, is kind of a different experience. Yeah, I think that we really do get something unique out of these in-person meetings but Jyoti, if we look ahead to sort of years in the future, how important will it be to retain that virtual component to these meetings that hopefully will continue to be live? I think we've learned that this multifaceted delivery of information is here to stay. Certainly, we want to make information as democratic as possible. There's such a rapid onslaught of new data now, multiple sort of reporting times. You can't be everywhere all the time. And so having the virtual component I think gives us a really wide audience. But I also think that the virtual component serves uh, modern learners to think about how people are used to getting information. So we know from more recent trainees in all of their lectures, it's been sort of this hybrid thing where you can annotate slides in real time where you have access to the streaming. And so I, I think this is here to stay and we're learning to make it better all the time. Yeah, it was a great platform. I think ISLC is really getting used to this process. Let's talk about the meeting itself. NACLC is a multidisciplinary meeting. It has joint sessions. As you mentioned, it has some parallel sessions. We spent a lot of time at this meeting focused on perioperative treatment, which many would argue sort of the most exciting field at the moment, specifically with regard to immunotherapy. We heard Dr. Tina Cascone gave a wonderful overview of the neoadjuvant and adjuvant immunotherapy options. And this was the focus of our president, uh, Dr. Heather Wakeley's closing keynote lecture. Now, clearly we've seen impressive outcomes with neoadjuvant chemo IO. Jessica, if we look at the, the approved Checkmate 816 regimen of neoadjuvant Nevo plus chemo, that's FDA approved. What's the reception been to this sort of paradigm shift from the surgical world? 
I would say initially I thought it was all in and we were 100% excited. And maybe that was just my own view because I'm all in and I'm 100% excited. And I would say most surgeons are. Uh, you know, we get excited when we see good survival data. Everybody does. And a group of patients, which has always been so challenging, you know, stage two and stage three don't have good survivals with surgery alone. I have heard some that are a little slow to kind of come along. It is a big paradigm shift, you know, for stage two to be having to treat before we take them to the OR to have to do molecular testing before you start treating. There's just a lot of new steps which get added that not all surgeons are used to yet. But I think as a field, we're really coming along. And like I said, I think Jonathan Spicer's data from ASCO that says it's safe. And then the really impressive survival data uh, make it make it easier and easier for surgeons to accept this new uh, way of looking at, uh, I don't even know what to call it, locally advanced or early stage disease. Right. Yeah. I, I really love the, the multidisciplinary nature of meetings just like this. So we can hear from you, from Jonathan, from surgeons, because uh, you know, when we talk about it in our bubbles, we sort of lose the the aspects, the pragmatic challenges, uh, the different perspectives. I, I really love the the multi-D nature of this. You know, when we think of of new paradigms, of new ways to approach disease, Jyoti, from a medical oncology standpoint, how does perioperative immunotherapy fit into the current workflow for our patients with, we'll say, early stage lung cancer? It certainly changed our approach and flow. And so, yes, there's absolutely enthusiasm about incorporation up front. What has changed is we've really had to double down on getting as much information as we can prior to the initiation of therapy. So getting early biomarker testing on limited samples, having appropriate reflexive testing so there aren't long delays to find out if a patient has an EGFR mutation or ALK translocation is absolutely essential. So certainly I think now as multidisciplinary groups, we've come together and really thought about how we're allocating tissue, getting marker testing and getting patients onto treatment without significant delays. From a med-onc standpoint, often uh, the scheduling is, is great and often it's really satisfying to see that the uh, treatment you're giving is working. <laughs> and so, you know, I think that has been an easy piece to get medical oncology on board. And so we have now neoadjuvant and adjuvant strategies approved with Checkmate 816, with Empower 010. You know, Jessica, are there advantages to one over the other from the surgeon standpoint? I appreciate that we could talk about that for hours, but just sort of <laughs> from, a, from a high level, um, you know, do you look at those two strategies a little differently? I, yes, I think we all look at them quite differently. The advantage of, you know, doing the adjuvant setting is that everything from a surgical standpoint just kind of moves a bit quicker, um, not having to wait for molecular testing, not always having to have a biopsy. Sometimes that stuff all makes sense. So I think for some of the node negative patients, the 1Bs, the large uh, tumors that are node negative, but stage two, I think surgeons do kind of maybe lean more toward the adjuvant approach. Yeah. Um, I, you know, we're still trying to learn if there's a difference between adjuvant and neoadjuvant, and maybe some of the melanoma data that we saw from ESMO is opening up the box that may tell us, you know, neoadjuvant really is better, and that may shift how we think about things. I do think, though, for especially the N2 patients, it's we have always treated those patients with induction first. So I think that's still where most surgeons 
think about how to treat their patients. Uh, the stage two is where I think it's a little more uh, maybe surgeon and institution and patient dependent. Yeah, that's really well put. Jyoti, any other thoughts on neoadjuvant versus adjuvant for, from your perspective? there are multiple considerations. One, with the available data, the neoadjuvant approach offers, I think, more discrete therapy. We're talking about three cycles of chemoamino followed by resection. For some patients, again, the adjuvant approach makes sense, but you're really looking looking at a year of therapy. On an intellectual level, um, it's, you know, pragmatic or on an intellectual level, it seems that having the antigen intact might engender a, a more significant immunologic response. But I don't think that we have proven that. And I think, you know, sort of randomizing patients to these trials to look at different approaches is something that was likely going to be in our future. Absolutely. Now we did see some some scientific sessions at NACLC two uh, twenty two as well. Um, you know, Shruti, uh, Dr. Ludmila Bazanova presented some updated data on sunvazertinib. Now this is an investigational EGFR exon twenty drug. Uh, can you summarize what she showed? Yes, definitely. Um, Dr. Bazanova, she presented the pooled analysis of the Wukong 1, 2, and 6 trials. So they were all phase 1, 2 um, studies that were conducted in the United States and in China, looking at Sinvizertinib, which is an oral EGFR exon 20 insertion inhibitor. And uh, she presented the updated safety and efficacy data. So they selected a dose of 300 milligrams daily based on the phase 2 study. And at this dose, they saw response rates of about 52% with activity actually seen across multiple different EGFR exon 20 insertions. They did see response in three out of the four patients that had been previously treated with amivantinib, and also they saw some CNS responses as well. Uh, In regards to side effects, uh, 59% of the patients had diarrhea with about 7% that had grade three diarrhea and 39% had rash, although only 1% had grade three rash and other side effects included anemia, paronychia and and decreased appetite. I think overall, it's, this looks like it's a promising new agent. That's another option other than mobocertinib and amivantinib um, in this patient population with what looks to be an improved safety profile compared to those other two drugs. And, and so um, looking forward to seeing kind of the, the next steps. Yeah. I think some interesting uh, features of this compound, it's sort of an early studies as a reminder, our FDA approved drugs are still amivantamab and mobocertinib, but they're certainly showing some promising activity. So looking forward to seeing uh, a little more data come from sunvazertinib. We did see some surgical presentations as well. And one of the surgical tracks was from our colleague, Dr. Nasser Al-Torki. Uh, Jessica, they talked a bit about sublobar resections. And it's my understanding this space has changed a little over the past few months. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that topic? Sure. This is a space that's changed a lot for us over the last two years or so. So lobectomy has been the standard of care. Uh, for 25 years based upon the lung cancer study data from 1995. And it's ruled everything in early stage disease for a super long time. But over the last two years, we saw two large randomized trials which compared sublobar resection to lobectomy for tumors less than two centimeters and not for ground glasses, for tumors in both trials that were at least 50% solid. Uh, the first trial came from Japan, the JCOG 0802 
and it, it randomized patients between lobectomy and segmentectomy. And we got their final results about a year ago and the sub-lobar or the segment group actually had an improved survival over the lobar resections, which was a little bit actually surprising. That was a really nice trial, 1100 patients, no deaths and just really great survival in both arms. The second trial, the CALGB trial, Alliance 140503, we don't have very catchy names, we got their long-term uh, survival data at uh, the World Lung this year. And basically, that was a trial of about 800 patients, a little under, maybe 760, that randomized, again, between lobectomy and sublobar resection. But in this trial, the surgeons could use a segmentectomy or a wedge resection. The primary endpoint was disease-free survival, which was also something we were a little worried about because of the risk for... Uh, recurrence without really being a risk for death. But the trial came back non-inferior. The survival curves and the disease-free survival curves for the two trials out at, I don't remember if it was four or five years, were just identical. So I think we're at a point where for well-selected patients with tumors less than two centimeters, we can be thinking about a sublobar resection as our treatment of choice. And this is really a new concept. I think a really important caveat of both of these trials was that the final randomization was done in the operating room and after the lymph node evaluation and all lymph nodes were frozen and were negative before we were randomized to lobectomy versus sublobar resection. So I think one of the important take-homes is as long as the lymph node evaluation is complete, a sublobar resection can be as good or maybe even better than a lobectomy for early stage tumors. Wow. I mean, these are, these are big changes. And I think it just highlights how important meetings like this are when we see standards sort of significantly shift. Um, another area where we've seen our standard shift has been in the adjuvant targeted therapy setting. And there was a discussion at NACLC about Adora with Dr. Roy Herbst. Jyoti, can you give your thoughts on these updated data? Sure. So we have, um, we have seen a, a couple of iterations of Adora and now have much more robust follow-up, um, still looking at, disease, at DFS, which was reported and led to approval based on sort of early results. What we know now is that three years of um, post-operative osimertinib reduces the risk of recurrence significantly. It's the hazard ratio is 0.23. That's a 77% risk of decreasing the risk of recurrence in patients with stage two and 3A non-small cell lung cancer. You think about that, that disease-free survival is almost 66 months in osimertinib versus 22 months, almost 22 months in the placebo arm. So this adopt or this recognition led to, I think, rapid adoption of osimertinib um, in, I think, also in the post-operative setting in both academic and community centers. We have now started doing routine NGS to look for patients with EGFR mutations. I think this more robust data gives us a sense that, uh, that perhaps now that we've gotten more patients who've discontinued their three years of treatment or discontinued osimertinib after three years of treatment, that perhaps uh, there is an increased risk of recurrence. 
a discontinuation. Those numbers sort of continue to increase. But what we say see maintained is significant improvement in dropping CNS relapse, a significant improvement of dropping the risk of the cancer coming back during those three years, and really no new no no new safety signals. So this is, I think, still affirming to what I'm doing, but there are still a lot of questions. Well, I think what we really want to see in that space is some sort of marker of minimal residual disease or some way to know if patients are already cured and don't need therapy. And those who need more therapy, I think the question of duration is one that we were, you know, we're going to be asking that for, for quite a while. Uh, we need longer follow-up to that study. At this meeting, we also saw longer follow-up with some of our approved immunotherapy regimens, including a Checkmate 9LA update from Dr. David Carbone. And we also saw an update on Empower Lung 1 uh, featuring semiplomab. Both of these updates highlight the potential for durable, meaningful immune-mediated responses, long-term survival. How important are these sort of constant ongoing updates, Shruti? I think uh, because there's a fair amount of ambiguity in the space of metastatic non-small cell lung cancer with no driver mutations, these updates are important in that they tell us whether patients are deriving a sustained benefit. You know, there's multiple different drugs, obviously, that we are looking at. You know, you have semiflumab, pembrolizumab, atezolizumab, um, ibinivo, and then and then you also plus or minus chemo. And so Really, the, my, my hope with the continued updates is that we gather more information, more data to tease out the differences between the different drugs and to figure out which patients may benefit, um, you know, which cohort of patients may benefit from these different drugs. For example, in Checkmate 9LA, there seemed to be, uh, Dr. Carbone was talking about the efficacy of Ibinevo and the squamous histology. And in, in Power Longo 1, we saw considerable differences in overall survival as we have increasing PDL1 levels with you know greater than 90% having the best outcomes. And so I really think that these data are important for, for us, but I, I also think that we don't have all the answers yet. Yeah, well, well said. Jyoti, your thoughts on the value of updates like these? Uh, I think sharing this information is absolutely valuable, but we come to a point where uh, many of these drugs have sort of similar survivors, or many of these regimens have similar numbers of survivors at three and five years. And we can sometimes get into the trap of looking at subsets of subsets with incomplete information. Mm-hmm. We don't have full uh, mutational analysis on all of our patients and start trying to pick a winner. And I fear that with the available data, we're probably not going to be able to. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly great to, to know that uh, these patients are, are doing well after three and five years, but it may be that we invest some time and energy into looking at uh, patients who are selected with biomarkers prospectively as well. Might sound a little bit cynical. Actually, I think it actually sounds very wise Jyoti, to, to not look for answers where they're not there, to not um, sort of overinterpret, and really, you're right. A lot of these these data sets they weren't designed to answer the questions that we're posing to them. So, I think that's a very wise way to look at that. There were a lot of wonderful scientific and educational sessions, and I encourage everyone to go back and view those sessions online. But I want to talk a little bit about another theme I noticed at NACLC, and that's one of mentorship. 
We had a lot of trainees and junior faculty at this meeting and at the podium, several educational awards presented and a lot of dedicated blocks for networking, including a women's forum networking lunch. Jessica, all of this sort of focus on mentoring, was that an intentional focus during the planning for this meeting? Definitely. I, one of the things that this meeting had considers very important and that those of us on the program committee really value. It's one of the, what's one of the really good things about the North American meeting, sending your trainees to Asia and to Europe is super hard. The time, the expense, it just doesn't happen. So really, you know, focusing on making sure that our residents and fellows, students and postdocs can come to a meeting like this is, is one of the things we really want. And I think it came out and, you know, the really great presentations from our trainees, um, the travel award winners were just exceptional. And again, I think we talked a little bit earlier about how good those posters were this year. It was really an exceptional yeah. room and that ability to kind of stand one-on-one with a, a fellow or a postdoc and have them talk about their work is that's just such a nice thing that you, that again, doesn't work on zoom, doesn't work remotely and that not everyone can do, you know, in Europe or Asia. Yeah, definitely something lost with the virtual part there. I think those are very important points. You know, it really has changed a lot about how our trainees sort of acquire the information, the experience that they need. Truthfully, this pandemic has changed a lot of the way we practice, certainly a lot of our care for patients. But if we just look at it from a trainee's perspective, do you think as a fellow, it's been challenging to find mentorship and to make these connections? I would say uh, the pandemic has no doubt come with its challenges from a networking and mentorship perspective. Um, I'd say that the trainees that likely were the most affected over the last two years were residents applying for fellowship or fellows applying for jobs. Um, My first two ASCO experiences were all virtual and it made it tough to seek out connections outside of my institution. But I do think that uh, trainees have learned to adapt to other ways of networking, especially using social media, which I personally think has been a great tool in the pandemic when these in-person meetings were suspended. And I would also, I also think that um, there, if there's a silver lining to any of this, it's that uh, the national and global collaborations that have increased as people have realized that they don't have to be in the same room to work together, especially since virtual meetings um, with Zoom kind of become the norm. And so I personally have worked projects with collaborators that I haven't have not met in person yet. And that isn't really something that I even thought was possible as a trainee uh, prior to the pandemic. Jyoti, from your standpoint, can you talk a little about the impact the pandemic has had on oncology training and on the next generation of oncologists and maybe in, in reference to how meetings like NACLC can help? So certainly to Shruti's point, I think in many ways it's made training much more democratic. There are chances to find collaborators all over the country and really find your passion. Um, I think the part that you know that I, I miss the most is all of those random interactions that you may not uh, have gone into with an intentional focus, but you see some behavior or some opportunity and you can move on that. And so it's those random serendipitous moments that can really change your eyes. I think the other piece is kind of keeping it real, right? I mean, we all have our Zoom personas with with great backgrounds and it seems like our lives are, are perfectly curated. 
But I think it's okay for trainees to see, you know, that, that we're authentic people with busy lives and sometimes things aren't perfect um, and to understand how to be resilient around that. So having these interactions, sort of watching people wing it if you know, the speaker doesn't show up, like those kind of pieces are, are I think are equally as important to staying resilient on the job. I, I love that, Jyoti. In fact, I can recall a point at this meeting where one of the talks, which was a little more basic, a little more pathway, it was a little over my head, if I'm being honest. And I sort of looked at the the slide and I kind of had this puzzled look on my face. And I look over to, to one of our colleagues over the right, just for, can you explain this to me? And just, he just shrugged his shoulders like, I don't know. <laughs> and so it made me feel <laughs> like, okay, at least if he doesn't know, at least I don't know. It's okay. We can read it later. So I, I think that right. feedback is important. Um, you know, I, I could talk to the three of you uh, for so much longer, but we are out of time for this episode. Uh, so Jyoti, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for this opportunity. You know, it's always great getting together. I think this is a fantastic forum and hopefully we'll see you at our next meetings. Oh, absolutely. I'm not missing another one. Shruti, thanks for all your insights and participation. Thank you for the invitation and to Jyoti and Jessica for organizing an incredible meeting. Yeah, echo that. And and Jessica, thank you for taking the time. And congratulations to all of you for participating and creating just this wonderful ISLC experience. Stephen, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Always happy to talk to you. And it's a great podcast. Keep going. And thanks to everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official IASLC podcast. I hope you'll tune in regularly to give us a listen. You can engage on Twitter at IASLC or at our website, IASLC.org. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.